Well, we are today continuing our study of the beginning. And what we've been doing in this series is we've been taking a look at the beginnings of some of history's most important moments, like the beginning of the world, the beginning of life, the beginning of marriage, the beginning of pain and suffering, uh, the beginning of death. And the reason why I believe this series is worth your attention is that it's when you go back to the beginning that you begin to get objective, not subjective, but objective clarity around answers to some of life's most important questions. Questions like, who am I? Why am I here? Why is life so hard? Where am I going? Now, last week, what we saw is that our very first parents, Adam and Eve, they messed up God's perfect creation. And from that time forward up until today and until that time that Christ returns, that this world is not going to work perfectly like God intended. There is going to be problems in life. And today, what we're going to find is that those problems also extend into family. Now, I have a question for you to think about today. It's this. Have you experienced family drama? And you might be thinking, what kind of question is that? Like, did you mean this morning? <laughs> like, within the, the last hour? I mean, of course, of course I've experienced family drama. We all have. We've all experienced the, the toddler that you don't know how to control and their little bit of a freak out in the middle of the grocery store or in the middle of some other public place. We all have that one relative at the family reunion that we either try to avoid or we know that they're going to say something that's going to offend half of the family or some topic that they're going to bring up. We've all had interactions, even with the people that we love the most, sometimes especially with the ones that we love the most, that have not been healthy, that have been filled with argumentative words. We've, we've had silent treatments in our families. Um, we've had slammed doors in families, right? And shouting words. Have you experienced family drama? We all have, haven't we? And, and then you, you look at the Bible, and you've heard me talk about this before. Um, when you go to the Bible, you cannot find a perfect family. And in fact, it's very hard to find a good one. And again, it started with the first family, Adam and Eve, and their marital argument as they blame each other and then the serpent for the decision they made to eat the fruit. And then over history, it just gets worse from there. And through the pages of scripture, we see within the family examples of murder and polygamy and adultery and civil war. And get this, brothers trying to sell their other brother into slavery. We don't like him. Instead of killing him, we're going to make some money off him, right? And on and on and on. Here's, here's the reality, that every family is made up of sinful, imperfect people.
people, and that's why there's going to be drama in the family. Every single one of us, because of our sinful natures that were passed on from Adam and so on down the line, we are by nature not good. Now, when Christ comes into our lives, he gives us a new life and a new beginning, and then through him, we are able to do some good, but we still battle that sinful nature, and by nature, we are selfish people. So you put a bunch of these types of people together that are sinful, imperfect, and selfish, and then in a family, you say, here, go, live together every day, be together all the time. What's going to happen? There's going to be problems, isn't there? We shouldn't be surprised. There's going to be drama in families. I don't care how much people love each other, there's going to be some drama. And so our first fill-in for today just kind of sets the foundation from which we'll then springboard, and it's, it's this reality, that having a family means there will be drama. Now, here's where I want you to listen very closely. Here's where I want you to really pay attention. Because what I don't want is for you to hear this and to think, you know what, my family's actually better than the ones in the Bible, so the drama's okay. It's going to happen, but I don't want any of you, especially those of you who follow Jesus, to just give up and think it's okay. I don't want any of us, even though drama will always be a part of the family, just to throw up our hands and say, you know what, it's, it's a part of sinful world that people are going to have drama in their family, so it's just the way it is. No, it doesn't need to be that way all the time. That there is the ability, guys, in our marriages, in our families, and even in our other relationships outside of our family, for there to be more hope and less dysfunction. For there to be more forgiveness and fewer grudges. Now, in, in the span of one message today, and especially as I think about just the one text we're looking at, our text is not going to you know, address every reason why there might be drama in the family. But it is going to smoke out and give us direction for one reason. That as I've had time to wrestle with it this week, I have found is a reason that probably comes up more than we think. And through it, God's also going to point us to a very simple but hugely impactful solution for there to be less drama in your family and your relationships. So, Adam and Eve just fell into sin. God came down. I love this that even before he gave the consequences to sin and there needed to be because God is holy and just, he gives them the promise of a savior. And then we turn to the next chapter and it goes this way. Adam made love to his wife Eve and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. Now, as far as we can tell from scripture, Cain would have been Adam and Eve's very first child, their first son. Eve said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, we don't know how much later, but later she also gave birth to his brother, Abel. Now, 
in between verses two and three. Many years go by because Cain and Abel now are going to be adults in verse three. Also speculation that Adam and Eve would have had more children. So it wasn't just Adam, Eve, Cain, and Abel on the face of the earth, but there would have been others as well. But here's what we see now into Cain and Abel's adulthood. Now, Abel, as an adult, kept flocks. So his occupation was a shepherd. Cain worked the soil. His occupation was a gardener. And in the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil, grains, vegetables, things that he grew as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So they both brought offerings, and yet Cain and Abel found out that God was pleased with Abel's offering, but not with Cain's. The question that's good for us to wrestle with is, is why? I think the answer is pretty simple. God's like you and me. He likes meat way more than he likes vegetables. I think that was the, that was the reason. No, that wasn't the reason. Let me take you back to a point in Jesus' ministry. Uh, Jesus and his disciples were sitting in the temple courtyard and they're watching as people give offerings. And there's a few people who come and they, they, give, these, they give large offerings of, of money to the Lord. And then they watch as a widow brings two copper coins. So basically two pennies. And she puts them in the bucket. And then this is what Jesus says to his disciples. He says, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They gave out of their wealth, but she out of her poverty put in everything, all she had to live on. Now, what's Jesus getting at here? He's not saying that the only offering that God looks with favor on is when someone gives everything they have and decides to live on nothing. That, that is not what God asks of us. For some of us, maybe that's what they w- would want to do, and, and that's okay, but it's not what God is saying here. It's not what Jesus is saying. But what he is saying is that there was a heart part of the widow's offering that those who were rich did not include. Or I'll say it this way. It's not just what you have in your hand When it comes to an offering, whether that be of your time to the Lord, whether that be of finances, it's also what you have in your heart. In fact, it's mostly what you have in your heart, that it's what's in your heart that directs not only how you give, but what you give. And I have to confess that I, I don't always give like that. This was convicting to me to think about. Would I have been more of Cain's offering or more of Abel's offering? But it's just a good reminder that when we give offerings, it's a response. It's a response and recognition that I would have nothing 
if it wasn't for the Lord. It's a response and recognition. It is gratitude and thanks of understanding that not only has God given me my gifts, my health, my job, so that I'm able to make money, he's allowed us to live, again, not in a perfect country, but most Americans, their wealth is in the top 2% of the entire world. And we're not even, we're considered middle class at that point, right? Did you choose to be born here? Most of us would have to say no. What a blessing God has given. And then on top of that, you think about the things that last forever through Jesus Christ. I mean, blessing after blessing after blessing after blessing. And then we give. God gave us his first and his best. He gave us his son. And then in response, we get to give also our first and our best out of gratitude and thanks. So from the outside, I don't know that Cain and Abel's offering looked that different. But what was different was the heart that God saw behind it. Abel gave out of gratitude and thanks. Cain, we're not exactly sure, but it was probably out of obligation. Like, I know I have to give, so I'm going to give. Or Abel's giving, how will it look if I don't give? I better give. I don't think they had any tax deductions back then, so I don't think it was that reason. But their hearts were different. So how did Cain respond to this? Verse 5. Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. He was very angry. And some of you know how he takes out his anger. We'll get to that in a moment. But I think where we're at in the story right now is good to consider who is Cain angry at? Who is he angry with? For those of you who are, are new to this account, or maybe for those of you who, who, who know it, you have in your, your mind, like, I thought Cain would be angry with his brother because he's the one that he took it out on. But it's not true. This is kind of the uncovering of where sometimes our hearts are at. Cain's anger truly was with God. An underlying anger with God, not accepting his offering. Now, question for you. Have you ever been mad at God? For some of us, maybe the anger with God has been very obvious and very transparent. You would say, yes, I've been angry with God. He took my loved one way earlier than I thought. He did not heal the disease that I've been going through. Yes, he took my, I've been angry with God. I think for for most of us, the anger we've had with God is not as blatant and obvious as that. It's more subtle. We call it frustration with life. And so we've been frustrated 
that life didn't turn out the way we had dreamed when we were little or when we got married. We're, we're frustrated with the, the dead-end job that we're in and we haven't been able to go to the next level. We're frustrated with our health. We're frustrated with life. Let me ask, well, who's the frustration with? You might name some people. <laughs> but at the end of the day, a lot of our frustration with life is frustration with God, isn't it? The one who guides our life, the one who has our lives plotted out for us. And when we're mad at God, where do we often direct our frustration? Let me ask you a different way. When we're mad with life, where often does our frustration get directed. Before I answer that, I want to give you an example of something that, that happened to me. It's going to illustrate the point. So I, I'm not a great cook. I don't make a lot of things, but one of the things I do enjoy making is a very simple salsa dip. I can give you the recipe later, okay? But it's just like cream cheese and salsa and a couple other things, and then you just mix it up with an electric mixer. Well, about a week or two ago, I was making the salsa dip, put the electric mixer into the salsa and the cream cheese. The cream cheese was a little harder than usual. And guess what happened to the salsa? Like it was on the wall. It was on the counter. I was wearing a white dress shirt, kind of like this. It was on me. Needless to say, I was not happy at all with specks of salsa going everywhere. This is what happens with our frustration and anger. There's something that happens, call it frustration with life. And then, like salsa splattering everywhere, our anger splatters on people. And who are the people closest to us? Our families, the people we live with the people we're married to. Our second fill-in for today is that we often take out our frustration on the people closest to us. And I, I think this is just something that intuitively you probably now realize, but we don't often think about. And it's really important to recognize this. And God wants to help Cain recognize where his anger really was at. And so here's what happened next. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? Now again, remember, nothing bad besides the, the, the bad offering, nothing bad towards Abel has happened yet. God is trying to give Cain an opportunity to stop things before they happen. He's giving him an opportunity in the midst of his anger to pause and to react in a healthy way. And one of the ways to do that is just to stop and ask the question, why? Why, Cain, are you really angry? Why are you, is your face downcast? Did you know this is probably one of the healthiest things that you could do? when you're feeling frustrated or angry, 
is to pause. Don't say anything. Don't do anything. Don't slam anything. Don't post anything. Just stop. And ask yourself, why am I angry right now? And maybe you have to add, really? Because you'll have a lot of answers right away, but no, no. Really? And is my anger justified? Now, I want you to ask these questions in your own life. And so to just, you know, help you say them, I want you to repeat them after me, okay? Why am I angry? Is my anger justified? And when we, when we stop the pause, I think we might realize, and not always, sometimes someone actually did, the person I'm angry with is the person that my anger should be at. That, that does happen. But sometimes if you're anything like me, if I stop and ask, why am I angry? It's not because the kids did anything or my wife did anything. It's because my sermon's not going well as I'm writing it or preparing it, and I'm frustrated, or something else happened at work. I'm frustrated with my job. I'm frustrated with how life is going. I'm frustrated with something else. That's why I'm angry, really. And even as you consider that question, what happens? You begin to, well, anger towards someone else begins to loosen its grip a little bit. And is my anger justified? And sometimes it is. But even when anger is justified, even then, God gives us some direction. He, he, we'll get to it in a bit, but he wants us to get rid of that anger quickly. Here's how we continue in verse 7. He says this, If you do what is right, Cain, won't, will you not be accepted? Like, I'm here for your forgiveness. I haven't left you. I'm coming with questions to you. I know you gave a bad offering, but I will still accept you. I just want you to repent. Be, say, I'm sorry. Repent of your sin. But if you do not do what is right, <laughs> sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. The theme of my message today is eyes wide open this is what it's referencing. That it's good for us to have our eyes wide open when it comes to the danger and the power of sin. I am no cook, I am no animal expert, but here's what I do know, that when lions come to feast on the, uh, the zebra, they don't come and say, hey, Mr. Zebra, I'm here to eat you, okay? They crouch, they get low, and they pounce when the zebra is unaware. And what God is telling Cain is sin is the same way. Sin doesn't yell, hey, I'm sin, I'm gonna make your life miserable. It's sneaky. It crouches like a lion. And sometimes, even in the short term, sin feels good. It feels good to let out your frustration on the people around you in the short term feels good sometimes to sin in the short term. But what God is telling Cain is be careful. Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. And when it comes to the things that we're feeling, 
We're focusing in on anger and frustration today, but really to uncover worry, anxiety, there's a lot of other emotions that are just good for us to recognize what they can do to us and to, well, to address them. Here's, here's what Paul writes about anger specifically. He says, in your anger, do not sin. So there is such a thing as righteous anger. You can be angry and not sin. How do you do that? Don't let the sun go down while you're angry and do not give the devil a foothold. Even righteous anger, what Paul is saying, needs to be addressed quickly. We need to get rid of it through forgiveness or through reconciliation. And if we don't, it's kind of scary to think about. It's kind of a crouching lion type of idea. But it's like we're allowing with unresolved anger for the devil to set up camp in our hearts. We're giving him a foothold. We're giving him a place in our hearts. And when that happens, unresolved anger results in activities and in actions that, well, might even surprise you sometimes. Number three, take control of sin before it takes control of you. So what does Cain do? God's given him opportunity to repent, right? Verse eight. Now Cain said to his brother, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Just two little words there. But man, it's like a gut punch as we think about the, the first murder in world history happening because of what? Because of anger that was unresolved. In this case, not even really anger with Abel, but anger nonetheless. God doesn't give up on Cain. He comes back to him. You're going to see the patience of God through these next verses as we go through them quickly. Then the Lord said to Cain, where's your brother Abel? He's giving him an opportunity to repent. Here's how Cain responds. I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And if you sense a smugness in Cain's voice, absolutely there. Anger has still got his heart. God's giving him opportunities for repentance. He's rejecting it. He's not willing to do that. Verse 10, the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you're under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You'll be a restless wanderer on the earth. What do you think about that? When there's sin, there's punishment, right? Still in it, Cain has an opportunity to respond in repentance, right? Verse 13, Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. It's like a stomping child, right? 
Oh, man, Lord, you're so mean to me. Today you're driving me from the land, and I'll be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Cain's still not there. Verse 15. But the Lord said to him, God's still gracious. Not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain. We don't know what that mark was or what it looked like so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And as you read through these verses, as I read through these verses, my heart and my mind kind of ping-ponged between two thoughts on either end of an extreme. These two. Either, on the one hand, man, Cain is so dumb for continually rejecting God's patient love. And on the other hand, navigating emotions in a healthy way is really, really hard. Both are true. We've probably experienced both of these. I know I don't always repent as quickly as I should. I know that emotions for me too are, health, are difficult to navigate in a healthy way. Do you know what you need? You need help. We all do. Do you know what you need? We need Jesus. We do. You see, Cain was angry with God and took it out on Abel. God is rightfully, in his justice, a righteous anger towards us and our inability to forgive, our inability to repent, our ability to be frustrated with him and take it out on the people around us. He is angry with us over our sin and he took it out on his son. That God in his grace and his mercy punished Jesus instead of us. That's what we celebrate here at North Cross is the Son of God who is willing to take our place on the cross for imperfect, selfish, unforgiving people that we can so often be. And it's interesting. In verse 10 of this section, it says that Abel's blood shouts out from the ground for what? Well, vengeance. And because of what Jesus did on the cross, get this, Jesus' blood shouts out from the cross, not for vengeance, but with redemption. You and I, as much as we have a difficulty navigating emotion and sometimes act like a blender and salsa dip, we leave this place today knowing that we are forgiven and things are right between us and him. And then God gives us, well, himself and gives us the power 
that we wouldn't have in ourselves to respond to that grace with patience, with love, with repentance, and with forgiveness. Not because there's a God that's saying, you've got to do this. It's because we have a Savior who's changed our lives, and we want to live and act differently. So here's kind of your practical takeaway today. And this whole idea of navigating anger, it's a journey, let me tell you, okay? You're not going to get it perfect. We've established that. But here's your takeaway. It makes a difference on what you think about and ruminate on and even meditate on. So often when someone has hurt us or when life has hurt us, what do we do? We ruminate on that person. We ruminate on that thing. And when we do, let me tell you, when we ruminate on that hurt, it is going to take us places God does not want us to go. We need to forgive. And then can we do this? Can we instead ruminate on something different? What would happen if we spent less time thinking about the person who hurt us and thought more about the person who died for us? What if we started our mornings not thinking about the the people we're frustrated with, spent more time thinking about the person who forgave us and forgave the person we're frustrated with, in fact, died for that person? Here's how Paul, not Paul, but the writer to the Hebrews says it, wrote it. It says, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. We run a race and we're focused on Christ. We live out our lives, we fixate, we ruminate, we meditate on Christ and what he's done for us and how he's freed us from the bondage of sin for the joy set before him. Guess who the joy was? It's you. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Here's your practical application. You can say it however you want it. I'm gonna take it from Hebrews. Number four, fix your eyes on Jesus. Here's a practical way to do it. Well, there's two. One I already mentioned. You're in the middle of an emotion. Stop. Think. Ask yourself those questions. Why am I angry, really? And is my anger justified? Then here's the proactive way. What would happen if you got up in the morning and you just spent some time thinking, fixing your eyes on Jesus? What if, what if you told yourself in the morning, there's going to be things and people today that are going to make me frustrated. It's going to happen. But today, I am not going to react in anger, but I'm going to react as a dearly loved child of God with forgiveness. What if we began our day and asked, us, asked this question, what does God promise me today? What are his promises I can count on today? What are some things I need to repent of? What are some ways I can live out my thanksgiving as my life can be a thank offering to him? This side of heaven, there will still be drama in families. But with God's help, we can do better. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we uh, we thank you for the, the families and the relationships you have put in our life. 
it's good to just recognize that um, there will be problems, there will be drama uh, because there is sin in them and there is sin in me. Lord, help me when I need to repent, to repent quickly, unlike Cain. And Lord, when I need to forgive, I pray that I would forgive as you have forgiven me. To then, Lord, I, I would ask you to heal any broken relationships that are in this room with your grace and your love with your son and pray that uh, we continue to live out our faith and how we interact with each other. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.